From one point of view, Holy Week was a painful, confusing, and disorienting week. It began with the news, or what we saw on our screens on Monday, of Notre Dame in flames. An incredible and terrifying picture of this beautiful and marvelous cathedral named after the mother of our Lord, the mother of Christ, a place of prayer for countless numbers of people, both those of of faith inside the church and many more outside of the church. Now, I'm a very rational Episcopalian, and I tend to overthink things, but even for me, and I suspect for some of you, the sight on my screen of God's house in flames really got to me on a subconscious level. For when God's house is impaired... Where does God live then? Then on Wednesday, really even stranger news, certainly news closer to home. I'm the the dad or parent of two teenage children who are in a high school here in Denver Public Schools. And we learned early that morning while it was still dark that another child was headed to Denver with Columbine on her mind and was a threat to other youth. By that morning, a lot of schools had been closed. Thousands of youth here in Denver had been affected by it. And then less than 24 hours later, the news came again on our screens that this child was more of a threat to herself than to anyone else. God rest her soul. God bless her mom and dad especially. And God help our country. There's a novelist that I enjoy who has observed that the Bible, more than anything, is a book of questions, much so, more so than a book of answers. And the question that kept echoing in my mind this week, and I didn't want to hear it, I certainly didn't enjoy it, was the question that God asks Adam and Eve when they find themselves east of Eden. God asks in a voice I can't imagine. I don't know if it was loud or quiet. I don't know if it was judgmental or tender. But it's a voice, as the story goes, that says, Where are you? Where art thou? It's a question that many of us, rightly and with great emotion, at certain points in our life, turn upon the Almighty. Asking that very question with heart and anger and fear to God. Where are you? If God asked us right now where we are, we can say with confidence we're in church. And not just any church, we're in a cathedral. And we're in a cathedral named after John's gospel. St. John's in the wilderness. And we're in that church named after John on Easter Sunday, which means we're hearing John's story of the resurrection. And with a little bit of imagination, with a little bit of faith, we might answer to God that we find ourselves in the middle of a story. That's where we are. In the middle of a story, if you want to get right down to it. As John tells it, and he's the only one of the four gospel writers who points this out, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb while it was still dark. 
And the darkness for John is an essential piece of it. Whatever happened, whatever it was, it happened in the dark. We can't see it. There's no video. There's no picture. There's no evidence. There's no proof. What we have is a story. And the most remarkable thing is the story might be enough. While it was dark, Mary Magdalene goes to the tomb. Mary Magdalene was one of Jesus' students. I don't know if Jesus had better or worse students, but she was certainly one of his brightest. This was a woman of remarkable intellect. This was a woman of remarkable courage. And something in her mind or in her gut told her to go there, led her there in the darkness to that tomb. Something happened. And again, it's dark. She couldn't see. Just imagine that. She hears something. She senses something. There's a conversation she has with somebody. And John tells us that that Mary Magdalene was supposing that this person was a gardener. Which is odd. Because this is far from a pastoral scene as we might think it. But in another sense, it's not odd. Because this story is built upon the foundation of other stories. And just before the story around the tomb and around the cross, there was a garden. And at the beginning of time, when God is up to something remarkable or interesting, there was a garden. So supposing him to be the gardener, a conversation takes place, still no recognition of what is going on. And then something happens that we can actually wrap our minds around, that changes everything in this story. I actually think the whole story hinges upon a single word. One word. The risen Christ says, Miriam. Miriam. It's her name. I don't know if he says it quietly or loudly, but I believe... That he speaks that one word with unimaginable tenderness. And Mary recognizes first herself. And then the risen Christ. And the whole story hinges upon her name. In a word, mystery, not magic. In a part of the mystery... Is the way that this story actually relates to our own stories. Which is why after thinking about this story for about, oh, several decades. And being a priest for almost a couple of decades. I've just about decided that the best way to come at it is indirectly. And not overthink it. I didn't grow up here. I grew up in the southeast, and out here, you, we have what I consider to be little bitty streams and rivers and great big mountains. In the south, it's just the opposite. We call them mountains, you would laugh, and call them foothills. 
we have great, gigantic rivers. The Mississippi and the Tennessee River. I grew up at the base of the Appalachian foothills at the bottom of the Tennessee River on the banks of the river there. I lived in a house. I loved the water from a very young age. The the, the beauty and magic of my childhood was being on the water constantly every day of summer, almost every day in spring when it was warm. We got to explore the entire lake, the entire river. Had great friends who were great swimmers, friends who had boats, a lot of trusted friends. And one day, I was about 10 years old, and I was with these two older teenagers, one of whom was named Christopher. They were friends of my family. They had boating licenses. They were safe guys. And they took me to this island that had cliffs that I'd never been to. And they were going to show me how to jump off of them. And we pulled up, and one of them manned the boat, and Christopher jumped out, and I jumped out, and we swam over to the cliff, and you climb up. It was hard to climb up. And Christopher went first, and every now and then he'd look back and show me where to put my hand, where, show me where to put my feet. Be careful, but you got this. Took me all the way up to the top. Incredible view of the entire channel of the Tennessee River. And Christopher jumped. It was about... 45 feet or so high, which is, if you just want to scale it, about as tall as the rude screen right there. Christopher jumped, and I was so excited to jump, but I just couldn't do it. I was scared to death. And I looked down, and Christopher was treading water, and he looked up at me. He was a very gentle soul. And he said, Richard, you've got this. The water's plenty safe. You're going to love it. Now, there are times in life not to do what someone encourages you to do. <laughs> this was not one of those times. <clears throat> so I took a deep breath and I ran and jumped and I pointed my feet. And I was straight as an arrow, and I shot down into that water. And the amazing thing is, is if you jump from 40 feet, you felt like you, once you hit the water, you shot down 40 more feet. So by the time you finally got back up, you were dying for breath. And I came up out of the water, and I said, (laughs) Woo-hoo! It was the most exhilarating thing I've ever done. I've since done it about a hundred times. Every time I go, I'm 45. Every time I go home this summer, if we're on the boat, that's where I want to go. It makes you feel like you're just alive and a child again. And it brings back all of those memories. And it brings back, for me at least, the kindness of Christopher's voice, encouraging me to do something that I knew deep down that I really wanted to do. In addition to being pretty rational, I'm just enough of a romantic to enjoy and know that Christopher in in Greek means Christ-bearer. From the other side of death, the risen Christ speaks each of our names with just a little bit of imagination 
a modest amount of faith. You can hear it. And hear it might be too strong of a verb. But because hearing and feeling are inseparable, you can feel it. And it's a voice that comes to us even now. It's a voice that comes to us, you might imagine, from the future even. And it's a voice deep in our guts that tells us by name, you've got this. You got it. And you matter. You matter so much. Christ has cleared a path for you and has already gone up ahead of you into that water. We're up ahead. There's so much more community, so much more justice, so much more healing, so much more love than we ever could have imagined.